Thank you, Father. My wife and I have already been greatly encouraged by Pat and by the elders of OBC. And during the service, during the break of the first service, we had tremendous fellowship with the family here. My wife and I do have a lot to share about India, but I know that your faith and my faith does not come about from me sharing a testimony about India, but it comes from hearing the word, the word of Christ. Tonight we'll talk about what God is doing in India, but for right now we want to go to God's word. Take your Bibles and please open to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. It was interesting, during the break, a brother came up and he was talking about the Lord ministering to him and he said, Jesus was messing with me. And in a very true sense, the Spirit of God is going to mess with you and me in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, 1 through 14. You follow along as I read it out loud. Chapter 7. A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than a day of one's birth. It is better to go into a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. While the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its possessors. Consider the work of God. For who is able to strengthen what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not discover anything that will be after him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we need your grace, whether it's to hear your word, to do your word, to preach your word. We need your enabling power, Lord. We want you to meet with us. We need your spirit to work in us. Lord, we pray that the meditations of our heart would be acceptable, Lord, in your sight, because you are our rock and our redeemer, and may you give us the grace to do 
what we read in here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you like your weather? I like my weather a very certain way. I like my weather to be bright, sunny, very warm, and cloudless. Like yesterday and today, perfect days as far as weather goes. But what about when the weather gets stormy? Those dark, ominous clouds roll in. I used to live in Florida where you have hurricanes all the time. Often we'd have maybe five hurricanes in one summertime come through Florida. And these dark, ominous, almost, almost black, purplish black clouds roll in. And it ruined my day. I had my whole day, my whole summertime planned out. Well, in a very similar way, that happens to us, doesn't it, with God's providence. Sometimes God can, in His providence, bring you a nice, sunny, warm, cozy day. Other times in life, God brings to you dark, ominous clouds. And all of us find ourselves in different positions in God's providence at different times. Where are you right now in God's providence? Perhaps the the walls and the floors of your life have dropped out. Your hopes and dreams have been crushed. All of us can blueprint our life the way we want our lives to be. But the truth of the matter is God does not go by your blueprint for your life. And at times it can seem as if God and His providence is not smiling at us, but rather He is frowning at us. And sometimes in our life, that is a sure and true reality. How do we deal with that? We are quick to say, and I know you are at this church, that God is absolutely sovereign. He is Yahweh, Lord of lords, King of kings, and He controls everything. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. But in the providence of God, life can be excruciatingly difficult at times. How do you and I react? We are quick to rejoice and to be happy during the blessings that God gives us. That is good. That is right. It can be like weather. I love being able to go body surfing. I love that. The other day with Pat, I went wakeboarding. And I love that. I love to hike. I love being outside. But especially in India, the weather can be monsoon. It's terrible. You almost don't see the sun for three or four months. I'm serious. And that I allow that at times to affect my attitude. And at the same, in this very same way with God's providence, when God doesn't go by Tom Shock's blueprint for his life, I can get upset and I can get bitter. Well, think about our testimonies. You know, we tell people we love Jesus, we follow Jesus. He is sovereign. He's the sovereign God of the universe. And then when things don't go our way, we can become bitter, depressed, despondent, get upset, back away from God. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes, in a very true, legitimate sense, deals with this specific question. 
It's written by the Spirit of God through Solomon. And Solomon deals with the question of how can you maintain your joy? And today, I know what God wants for you. Not because I am some kind of prophet. I know that God wants you to have joy when you go through a trial. And this sermon this morning, by God's grace, will teach you and I that even when you are under a frowning providence, you must obtain joy by faith out of that tough time. When the clouds of God's dark providence comes over you, you must, by faith, obtain joy. Let me just show you this in a passage. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And notice seven or eight times, and we'll only look at a few of them, but you see the word better. Look at verse 1. A good name is better than good ointment. Look at verse 2. The day of your death is better than when you are born. It is more valuable to die than to be born. Verse 2. There's more profit, more value in going to a funeral service, seeing a dead person in a casket and thinking about that you will be food for worms than it is throwing a party, a Monday night football party. Which is better? Having a Monday night Tampa Bay, who my favorite football team, having a, a blast that they won the Super Bowl, are thinking about the fact that I'm going to be dead soon. So you have these really tough, horrible times and situations that are in your life, 1 through 10, 1 through 11, and you always see these words, better, 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 better. There's more value in tough times and difficult times than good times. And so I say you must obtain joy by faith because when I see somebody die, when I go look in the mirror and I look at my face, sometimes I might say, man, you're handsome. Gosh. Most of the time, what do you and I do? Oh, Lord, have grace. Man, I'm really homely. But when you look at verse 1, what does verse 1 say? It is better that you have a good reputation, then really you look good. That takes faith. Whenever you see this word in this passage, better, 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 God is saying these things that that look bad and that even feel bad, those ultimately have more value to you than the best of times. So when the dark clouds of God's providence comes your way, and it's really scary, and it's ripping on your flesh. The Spirit of God is saying you must obtain joy out of that by faith. Now, we're going to look at this passage, but just briefly, for you to understand this passage, you need to understand Ecclesiastes. We are jumping right in the middle of the book. So I need to try to at least give you the theme of the book. And I want to give you a seminary seminarious theme, okay? So you might want to take out a sheet of paper and a pencil and I'll say this really slowly so you get it, okay? Are you ready? Take the bone of life, bite it in two, suck all the marrow, slurp that marrow out. Be careful you don't choke on the bone. That's the theme of Ecclesiastes. That's the theme. Take the bone, take that marrow, 
drain it, but you better not choke on it. I was in India with a good friend of mine. He's an Indian, Chris Williams. We're having lunch. It's maybe the third time I've had lunch with him. I finished eating my chicken, and he says, Tom, can I have your chicken bones? And I looked at my chicken. There's no meat on them. I ate the meat off. Sure. I gave it to him. He did the strangest thing. Takes the bone, put it in his mouth, bit it in two, put one half in his mouth, and started slurping out the marrow. And there was a little bit on his lips, so when he was done, he went... And then put it back on his plate. That is the message of Ecclesiastes. If you're going to live, you had better really live. Go full blast. Enjoy life. Why be a fuddy-duddy person that has your head stuck in the mud and nobody wants to be around you because you're just gloomy and you're miserable? No, live life full blast. Just remember Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 Fear God and keep His commandments. The message of Ecclesiastes is basically that you and I, you have this word vanity, vanity, vanity that's used all throughout Ecclesiastes. We look around us, life in one sense is a frustrating enigma, right? You have your job, you work really hard, you're saving money for your family, for vacations, for your kids. Ultimately, you die. You don't know what's going to happen to your kids. Are they going to misuse the money? Is the money going to be there? There is wicked people in this world that are more rich presently and have, with our worldly eyes, have great lives and no struggles. And we trust Jesus And we have more affliction than they have. And Solomon is saying, how can we maintain this joy when we look around us and there are these questions and it seems that life itself is such a vapor. You live and you die and it's over. And the answer that Solomon gives really blows us away. And that's why I said, Jesus, in a way, is messing with your mind. Because we'd expect God to say, you know, what you need to do is really got to wear this suit and this tie. Be sure to have every single day, be sure that you have three or four quiet times, memorize 100 verses, and then be sure you read the Calvin Institutes about the sovereignty of God. You know what he says? Look at Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7. And this is the Spirit of God messing with your mind. It's truth, but it's provocative truth. Go then... Chapter 9, verse 7. Eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. Put oil on your head. Look good. Buy some nice clothes. Enjoy that snapple. Enjoy the wine. Verse 9. Enjoy life with the woman you love all the days of your short, fleeting little life. Solomon says, you live and you die, and it's going to be quick. You know, I am, Lisa doesn't like me to tell you her age, so I won't do that, okay? I won't even tell you if she's older or younger, okay? I turned 41 years old. 
I can remember when I was nine and I thought that 20 was old, you know, and now I'm 41. I think I'm more than halfway over with my life. I think I'm going to die when I'm in my 70s. I I would like that because then I can be with Jesus. Life is brief and it's gone. And Solomon, when he writes this, is an older man. And he's saying, I had anything you want. You wanted wine, you wanted women, you wanted a garden, you wanted entertainment, whatever. you wanted super nice clothes, GQ clothes, uh, you wanted to be a poet. I, mean, I had all of that. And it's over. It's gone. And then you would think his advice would be, be a hermit, go up and just live in a cave and get close to God. But you know what he says? Enjoy life. Life is brief. And there are some things that happen in our life that we don't understand. And you may not understand it until you see God. How do you live in that? You seek to have this joy. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Look at verse 15. So I commended pleasure... For there is nothing good for a man under the sun. There is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. For this would stand by him and his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. The book of Ecclesiastes really in a strong way teaches that God is sovereign and that God in his sovereignty brings in tough trials and tough times. How do we respond to those? In Ecclesiastes 8, he says, have this joy. Enjoy life. Enjoy what you have. You see that in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. He says, it's nothing better to eat, drink, be merry. You're going through a difficult time. Solomon is not saying be giddy and be childish with your joy. But there are things that you can rejoice and be happy over. And there's these different movements in Ecclesiastes that bring us to these goals of joy. Let me just summarize. What's the theme of Ecclesiastes? If somebody asks you, you can say, take the bone of life, snap it, suck all the marrow out of it, and afterwards they go, "Mm, that is good. Yes. That's how we should live life. But we face tragedies. People die. People slander you. You can be afflicted. You can lose a job. You can work hard for something, plan for something. It doesn't work. I wanted to be a commercial artist and draw Superman and Spider-Man. And I even drew comics and sent them in. And they always told me every time, not good enough, try again. Not good enough, try again. And my, my dreams were crushed. That happens to us. But what Solomon is saying, there is a way to obtain this joy. You don't want to get choked on the stuff of life. It can if you're not careful. But by faith, you can obtain joy out of the tough time. And he's going to give you two principles of faith that you can do this. There are going to be two principles of faith by which you can obtain joy out of tough times. The first one you're going to see in verses 1 all the way to verse 12. So we'll spend most of our time on that. Because God spends most of His time on that. And then we'll look at the second faith principle, and that will be in verses 13 to 14. And we'll look at that at the end for a few minutes. What is this first faith principle 
by which you and I can take a, a really hard time in our life and turn it into an opportunity for joy. Let me give you this first principle of faith, and it's this. Prize the value of tough times. You see this in verses 1, again, all the way to verse 12. Prize the value of tough times. Cherish the value that tough times bring to you. Appreciate the value that tough times bring to you. Notice I didn't say cherish, value, appreciate the tough time. Okay? I had a, a, a stick when I was young, and I was running barefoot, and it was a root. The root rammed up in between my toes and stuck in there and got broken off, and it really hurt. So this passage is not saying that when that happens, you are just rejoice, praise God, glory, hallelujah. I love when a stick gets rammed into my flesh. That's not what the passage is saying. But there is something from that that is more valuable than if you are running and somebody gave you a Snickers bar and said, here, this is for you. That's what this passage is saying. There is a value that comes out of the tough times that's better than having a what we might call a good time. It's not wrong to have a good time. <laughs> but during these tough times of God's frowning providence, there are benefits that come. Again, we looked at this word already, better, 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 better. Let me give you this principle. Prosperity is not necessarily a blessing. Adversity is not necessarily a curse. That's the way the world looks at it. That's the way we normally look at it. That's not the way God looks at it. Prosperity is not necessarily a blessing. Adversity is not necessarily a curse. Listen to the words of Charles Hadden Spurgeon. They went through many trials in his life, many, severe. This is what he says. I am afraid that all the grace I have gotten out of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I received from my sorrows and pains and grief is altogether incalculable. What do I not owe to the hammer and the anvil, the fire and the file? Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. Those are tough words. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. Can you honestly before God say, in my house, it's not the lazy boy that I love. It's that affliction. Spurgeon, I think, had greater faith. And I know he had greater faith than I did. But what Solomon, by the Spirit of God, is going to do is to unfold for us how these tough times can be of great value. So I'm going to give you six quick principles of how these tough times can be valuable times. So you have this faith principle, and that is cherish and appreciate what the tough time can bring. 
Well, how does that work out? Well, God's going to tell us in His Word how this works out. So let me give you a first principle. A good influence is better than being good-looking. A good influence is better than being good-looking. Look at verse 1. A good name is better than good ointment. Now, ointment was used for what? Well, it could have been oil. It could have been perfume. It could have been cologne. The idea was that they would anoint their head. They would take their beauty cream and rub it into their skin. You know, today we have all these bath and body beauty cream things. You have coconut. You have lime. You have, I don't know, asparagus, whatever. You put them into your hands, your face, and you look good. Solomon's not saying it's bad to look good, but note verse 1. It's better to have a good name than to put on all these nice attire so you look really beautiful or you look really handsome. A good name, it's the idea name is the outward expression of your inner character. The idea for us in understanding the whole canon of Scripture, the idea is that really being known for Jesus Christ, making an impact for Christ, that is that you influence people with your good name. They think of you... You know, he is a man that lives for God, that lives for Christ. It is better to have a godly influence, men, than it is to look like Harrison Ford or George Clooney or Brad Pitt. That's what Solomon is saying. And for your women, you know, I I won't say which movie star I did in the other one, but I know at times I'll be with my wife and she'll be, you know, that woman is so pretty. I, I... And I'll say, Lisa, you are the most beautiful woman in the world. You don't have to worry about it, that. I know that ladies struggle more than men with their appearance. So God is saying here in his word, better is that you influence people for Christ with your good name than looking like whether you... When I was growing up, it may have been Farrah Fawcett. Now it may be Catherine Zeta-Jones. It's better, rather than looking at the mirror and going, hmm... It's better to look at yourself and do I impact people for Christ? It is. You can answer this question, men. Would you rather, if God gave you the option, Tom, do you want to be the most handsome man in the world? Whoever that is, George Clooney, Brad Pitt, whoever it is, Johnny Depp, I don't know, some movie star. You want to look like them, but you're going to influence nobody for Jesus. Or you can be short, fat, bald-headed, bow-legged, and a crooked nose. If God gave me the option, you know, I, the tug would be, I would like to have the movie star appearance. But it's more valuable, God says, that you and I think about, what about my impact? Because all those movie stars, all those glamour magazines... of those people would die and go to hell forever and will accomplish nothing good of eternal value on on this world. And we get so scandalized by the world. And that can be a tough time, right? You look in the mirror, and I guarantee you most of us don't look in the mirror and go, man, I'm getting younger. Look at that. This is great. My wrinkles are, are vanishing. No, we look in the mirror and it's like, that wasn't there yesterday. Lord, and God is saying it is more valuable 
You look at that wrinkle and you say, I may be decaying, but God is using me. God is using me for Christ. Solomon goes on and he has another principle. Look at the second part of verse 1, and I missed this in the first service, I believe. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. So right away, Solomon starts talking about death and dying versus the second best moment in life. Maybe the third best moment. You're born. Being married might be, I know it is, number two. And then being born again is number one. But notice in verse two, it is better to go to a house of mourning. And then notice verse four, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. So here's the second principle. And this point comes from the second half of verse one to verse four. And this is the principle. Meditating on your Death, your inevitable death, is better than throwing a party. Notice what he says in verse 2. It's better to go to a funeral service, a house of mourning, than a house of feasting. And the idea of feasting in the Old Testament, it wasn't just that you have a little bit of food. It, huge banquet. And even if you go to the land of Israel, and some places you will see, and some of the old, old cities, they have these big bowls. Both the, the Greeks used to always do this. The Persians used to do this. They would eat so much and gorge themselves and drink so much that they would say, please excuse me from the party. Go outside and, and the bowl. They would throw up. They would vomit. That's, I mean, that's how much they were partying. It was a good time. Solomon knew about good times. Okay? He was more of a partier than you will ever be or ever have been. And what does he say? It's better to think about death and even my death than to have a hellacious, radical, mind-blowing party. That's what God is saying here in this passage. One of the greatest struggles that we have is with death and when loved ones die. And it's real. And it's terrible and it's tough. And if we don't respond to it right, it can cause bitterness between ourselves and God. My own dad, when I talk to him on the phone, he sounds absolutely hopeless. He's not a believer. And in the past three years, uh, his wife died, my mother. His mother died. His grandfather died. His daughter-in-law died. His oldest son, my oldest brother, died. His second son could die today, tomorrow, with throat cancer. When I talk to my father, he's absolutely hopeless. My mother was battling cancer, and my mother wanted to plan the funeral service with me. My dad cannot understand that at all. Because he was hopeless. My mother, she was telling me, Tom, I want you to give an altar call and I want you to preach this passage and I want you to hand out these tracts and you have to, she's from South Georgia. So you have to talk to Uncle Clifford and Uncle Shorty and be sure they know about Jesus. My mother, the way that she faced death was not that she was happy and laughing, but there was this deep-seated joy that 
God is in control. I can't control my life. God is. And right before the last time I saw her, I had to come back to India. And she was still alive at this point. And I said, Mom, I, I don't think I will ever see you again on this earth. I'll see you later, but not on this earth. And she looked at me and said, Tom, actually, you might die before me. So be sure that you're living for Jesus. And I think one of the best times of my life was when I went to her finger service. And I went to the casket, and there she was. And I'm just going to be honest with you. It was ugly. It was bad. And everybody is, oh, she looks so pretty. She looks so peaceful. And my brother just looked at me, and I said, man, that's the worst I've ever seen her. It's, I don't even want to look at that. That's not even going to be her. She's with the Lord in heaven. You know what it did? It made me really think about my life. Am I ready to die? Am I? I mean, truly. Are, the, and are there these secret sins that I have in my life where it's my precious and I'm going to keep it because I like it? I know you have those. I know you do. And you're just hoping you don't die today and see God. And what Solomon is saying is, it's better than going to a party and having just this great, incredible time. It's better that I think about today. I could be, I could be dead. I could meet God. And often we go through tough times. You go through tough times. Your life can be in jeopardy. I'll never forget, I was in an airplane with Sammy Williams. We're coming home from India. We're flying. All of a sudden, all these stewardesses are walking around taking all the luggage out of the airplane. And I said, uh, what's going on? And the stewardess said, well, there's a bomb on board. I said, excuse me? There's a bomb on board, and the note says the plane's going to blow up in 10 hours. How far are we from L.A.? 15 hours. Okay. So I turned to the person beside me. I thought, I, I better witness. God, God would want me to witness. And they're asleep. So I said, but, you know, you really think about, I didn't blow up, and I'm here. <laughs> it was a false alarm. There was some guy that was being really bad left to know. But doesn't that make, make you think about your life? In other words, the way that we approach death is really from the perspective of the world. Jesus died and rose again, and when he died, he took the sting out of death. Death and being a slave to that fear is the tool of Satan. Rather, we need to approach death not as something which is going to separate us from the best thing, which is our loved ones. Death actually is going to bring us to the one that we love the most. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And death really caused Solomon to think truly about his own life. Solomon continues on and he says this, a third principle. And this is verses 5 through 7. It is better to... Get rebuked. Then somebody write a wonderful love song about you. Look at verses 5 through 7. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man, not a wicked man, not an evil man, but a man that loves God and lives for God. It's better to listen to him than some fool, some worldly person to sing this song. And there's this implication. They're going to sing a song to entertain you. Which is better? Which would you rather do? Would you rather have somebody 
sit down and say, man, you're awesome. And when I think about the person I want to be, it's you. So I'm going to write this song for you. Man, I would love that. Wouldn't you love that? I want to be like, in fact, my song is going to be entitled, I want to be like Tom. I would love that. I wouldn't love if somebody came up to me and said, Tom, you're the person I don't want to be like. Because you've got anger. Sometimes you're lazy. I wouldn't like that. Would you like that? Some of the most heart-wrenching moments in my life is when people that I've loved have come to me and have said, Tom, you're wrong in this area. It's hard when my wife graciously, kindly comes to me and says, Tom, you know, you're angry. You're angry. And I've said, no, I'm not. I'm not angry. Honey, you know, I'm just letting you know. No, if I was angry, I would yell. I'm not yelling. And then the silent treatment comes, right? It comes for a little bit. And then I realize, I'm angry and I lied. (laughs) You know, I did both. God, forgive me. So then I go back to Lisa. Lisa, please, I I keep saying this to you, I know, honey, but forgive me. I was angry and I lied to you. It's great to have a wife that is gentle and kind, but will say, honey, (laughs) you're blowing it. And we need friends like that. But we often don't want to have friends like that. Isn't that true, men? Do you have somebody, a man in your life that will come to you and will say, Brother, I love you, but this is really stupid. This is just dumb and it's sinful. You know, In India, I really didn't have that. I had to go to one of my friends and I said, Please, you are free to rebuke me. I mean, don't do it like every day. But... <laughs> When you see something wrong, rebuke me. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever, yeah, sure. And I said, okay, let me rebuke you just to get this going. (laughs) And what happened is he doesn't rebuke me. I'll tell you who rebukes me. Don't tell him I told you. Jeremy Smith, he's the guy, my fellow American, he's the guy that will rebuke me on things. And I appreciate that. It's not easy to hear. And that, can't that be a really a heart-wrenching time when people say things about you and you're like, man, who are you? I know your life. <laughs> who are you to say that to me? Come on, get real. But really what we need to do is look at verse uh, 6 and 7 is to consider which is more effective. Because verse 6 says, when somebody is just saying nice things about you, it's like taking a bush and lighting it on fire and trying to use that to cook a meal. You know, green bush. It's going to burn. There's going to be lots of smoke, but not a lot of heat. The crackling of thorns under a pot. That's like somebody that you're a good friend with and you get together. Hey, man, how's it going? Oh, yeah, it's cool, dude. And you just, ah, yeah, yeah, hey, have you heard this joke? <laughs> that's a great, oh, that's fantastic. You know, we, that's not bad. But what can happen to us is this guy over here, this man, he's going to come and say, you know, that joke's it's a little bit off color. It's, a, you know, not God. Man, who are you? Grow up. Don't be a prude. Come on. We're men. But it's that guy that we need to. Well, maybe he has something to say that's legit, that's real, that's biblical. Now, not everybody that comes to you to rebuke you is coming to you with the right motives. Look at verse 7. For oppression makes a wise man 
mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Somebody may come to you with the idea that they are going to rebuke you in an oppressive way. And at times, even a wise man may get upset, may get irritated about it. Look at the second half of verse 7. A bribe corrupts the heart. In context, what is this talking about? Well, look at the end of verse 6. So is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. You can have this great relationship with somebody. You get together, you laugh, you joke, and he says good things about you. He's bribing your heart. And it's a frustrating enigma. It's vanity. It's futile. Because you love this guy. Because when you get together, he's not saying, you know, I just want to encourage you with God's word. Rather, he's saying to you, hey, you know, you heard about this person? Isn't, isn't that funny what they did? <laughs> Can you believe that? They don't talk bad about you. They talk good about you but maybe bad about somebody else. They write you a love song. And so Solomon is saying, it's better to at least listen to the rebuke to consider if it has value. If it does, if it's biblical, then good, repent. Now Solomon goes on. Solomon goes on. You know, somebody comes to me and they rebuke me. Okay, I can take it. I'm a man. I'm a pastor. I'm a seminary teacher. I can take the rebuke. Then he comes to me again and rebukes me. Hey, love is kind. I love the guy. He comes to me a third time. It's war. You've declared war. But notice what Solomon says. And this will be this fourth principle. And it's that patience is worth more than being quick. To respond. Notice this in verse 8. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Don't be quick to decide how you're going to respond, how you're going to react, how these frowning providence are all going to turn out. You don't know. Patience of spirit is better than quickness, better than haughtiness of spirit. See, what can happen is people can rebuke us, our times can go bad or whatever the situation is, and we are quick to what? If somebody's confronting me, all right. How many verses do you know? I know more verses. Let's battle it out. Tough times comes my way. I'm going to battle my way all the way. You just watch this. And here, the idea is this. And verse 8, patience of spirit. Patience is the Hebrew word that means low. That is, you're not going to be the kind of man that I'm going to take off my jacket, the kind of person I can do it. I'm a a self-determined go-getter. I can make it happen. Rather, you're, Lord, I'm a nobody. And Jesus said, without him, I can do nothing. I can't make it on my own, Lord. And even my my get-up-and-go is not enough, Lord. I'm bankrupt to be able to make it through this tough time. I can't do it, Lord. The high spirit is this idea. It comes from the word here, haughtiness of spirit, of this eagle that is soaring. So you see the the contrast here, that when tough times come, if that involves rebuke, a death, whatever it involves, we are not quick to all of a sudden get bitter, we get angry, fight fire with fire. I'm going to, I'm really, I'm a tough guy. I'm going to make it through this. But rather, it should be this attitude of, 
going to be quiet. I'm going to be still. I'm going to trust God. Look at verse 9. Do not be eagle in your heart to be angry, for the anger resides in the bosom of fools. We get into a trial, whether a person is rebuking us, somebody has died. We can get angry. We can get bitter. God says that is stupid. It's just stupid to get angry. Are you quick to get angry? We can be. God says that that kind of attitude is for a foolish person. It's stupid and it's ugly. Now, let me give you this last principle. I'm just going to name it. And you see this in verses 10 through 12. Today is worth more than yesterday. Sometimes in our life, our attitude can be, I love my old job. Being single, being married is okay. I wish I was single again. Uh, I miss the golden years. And really what Solomon is saying in verses 10 through 12 is, again, that's stupidity. And you're saying, basically, God, you have not met my needs. You have not treated me right. You're not giving me what I deserve. There is more value in looking at today and looking at how, how God has cared for you than comparing it to yesterday. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Tomorrow is in the hands of God. Many of us want to live in yesterdays. It's gone. It's over. Can't change it, ever. And Solomon says, you're a fool to keep thinking about that. Live in today. Now, just super quickly, that is this first faith principle that Solomon gives us realize that there are these there's this value that comes from tough times but we always have a question and that's why god why do you take me through these tough times for why well god has an answer and he answers this in verses 13 to 14 and i want you to look at the middle of verse 14 but in the day of adversity consider see in verse 14 the Spirit says, yes, when, when you're being blessed by God, be happy. That's not bad. That's good. Praise God. Be joyful. But even when tough times comes, don't automatically get sad and gloomy and, and doubting. But consider this. God made the one as well as the other. Sometimes we might say, well, God permitted uh, my mom to die. God permitted my car to break down. God permitted me to get injured. God permitted my job to be lost. But when you look at verse 14, does it say permitted? God has made. Now, in the providence of God, God has different means and different agencies, but all of those are efficacious. God is the one that brings in these tough times. It's His hand. I have friends in India that are charismatic, and if they have a bad day, they say, Satan is after me. It's Satan. You know, there may be some truth to that. Satan's a lion. He wants to eat you alive, eat your faith. But even Satan, the Martin Luther used to say, is God's devil. He's God's puppet. God has made the one as well as the other. Watch the purpose. Look at the end of verse 14. That man may not discover anything that will be after him. God's purpose and putting you and I through difficult times 
is that we would see that God is supreme, that God is exalted, that you and I are not God, that we do not blueprint our own lives. So we, we may try to be the architect and design our own lives, and this is how it's going to be, and I, I just know it's going to be like this. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen tonight. You don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now. But God does. Now you may say, well, how does that give me joy? (laughs) That sounds like God is some kind of tyrannical despot. Well, it's not true. You can just look at Ecclesiastes 12 here in verse 11. And he says it's given by one shepherd. God is your shepherd. And it is good for you and I to step back in our life And to say, I am not God. I don't hold my life in the palm of my hand. God holds my life in the palm of His hand. And He is a shepherd. And He cares for my soul. And ultimately, God became flesh. And that is none other than Jesus Christ, the great shepherd. And Jesus, more than any of us, was under the frowning providence of God, right? He came into his own. His own received him not. His own disciples forsook him. The sins of the world were placed upon him. Even the Father briefly forsook him. And Jesus, the Bible says, responded to it all for the joy that was set before him. It is good for our souls and for our spiritual well-being to realize that joy does not come from how does my life turn out by how I have planned it. But how does my life turn out by how God has planned it? That's what brings joy. Let me just close by reading these words from a man that has suffered, I think, more than all of us, William Cooper. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, The clouds so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the patience of these kind people. We pray now you'd use your word greatly in our hearts and lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.